Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. They estimate it's going to be five million per bridge. A lot of people will say, it's a lot of money. How much is a life worth? Is, is five lives not worth five million? Because five people have died this year alone in Rhode Island on Rhode Island bridges. Five people. The Blackstone is our river of life in this area. Because of industrialization, that was the only dumping ground they had. So it poisoned the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. Today, it's not recommended that you swim or eat the fish you catch in the Blackstone River. But for researchers, hope springs eternal. It is not, um, as the EPA called it at the time, one of the most toxic rivers, one of the most polluted rivers. I would say we were getting there. Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm Michelle San Miguel. Each day, thousands of Rhode Islanders pass over our area's bridges, Newport, Jamestown, Mount Hope, and others. For most, they are just a means of getting from point A to point B. But for some people and their loved ones, they are a site of no return and pain. When you look over at the Newport Bridge right now, what do you think? I uh, think of uh, what other people think of when they're going through dark moments as I was that you know, night. That night in June 2015, Mark Gonzalez jumped from the peak of the Newport Pell Bridge, plunging into Narragansett Bay. Do you remember anything? I remember everything. Everything but impact. There was a lot of pain going through my heart. That night, I got some more bad news about employment which kind of just topped everything off that I was already going through. I waited for my girlfriend to go to sleep. I took the keys, I emptied everything out of my pockets, got in the car and tried to make a few phone calls. After that, I just punched the gas and drove about 100 miles per hour and got to the top and slung the door open and it was easy to jump on top of the railing. You know, the railing's less than 48 inches. So you went there knowing that it was low enough for you to gain access to the edge. Oh, yeah, yeah. You are a miracle. You jumped and lived to tell the tale. How was that possible? Every detail um, of how it went was a miracle. I mean, from how I hit the water, feet first, the discs in my back, down my spine burst out as everything is pushed down. And Rhode Island Hospital being the only hospital in New England that has the only machine that could have saved me at that time. He was also lucky because two pleasure boaters happened to be nearby when he jumped and fished him from the waters. Do you feel like you were saved for a purpose? Uh, I do. I definitely do. That purpose brought Gonzales to the Rhode Island State House to testify in favor of Bill 7383, calling for a design study of suicide barriers and safety nets on all four of Rhode Island's major bridges. 
I'm a suicide survivor by way of Newport Bridge. I had no weapon that I thought could do the job. I had no pills to OD on. I had a car to get into and less than a quarter mile to drive to the top of the Newport Bridge. And because the railing's so low, um, I, that's why I chose the Newport Bridge. In Rhode Island, there's a lot of money put into um, repairing potholes, you know, so we don't damage our cars. But um, I'm here to ask that we put some money into these bridges so we don't damage any more lives. My name's Melissa Cotta. Melissa Cotta also testified at the hearing. She witnessed a man's fatal jump from the Mount Hope Bridge as she was driving by. That was um, a moment that I will see his face forever. It, I can't believe it was six years ago because it is so real to me and it, it matters that I do something about it. What she did about it was become co-founder of Bridging the Gap for Safety and Healing. The group's advocacy helped pass that bill, providing a million dollars from the American Rescue Plan Act for a barrier engineering study. But she says it was just the first step. We are advocating to put up temporary barriers while they complete the study and before the permanent barriers go up. We need to put something up because the longer we wait, the more people that are gonna to continue to jump. And the current study is going to probably be completed somewhere at the beginning of 2024. So we're looking at about 18 months or so, and that is an awful long time to keep our bridges unsafe. From November 2020 to November 2021, we had 13 total jumps from our four bridges. So um, this is a significant amount. The ripple effect is it, can Im it impacts families, it impacts our community, it impacts your, the co-workers, it impacts all the children growing up. Gonzales believes the impact of safety barriers will be significant. Most of the times it's done through impulse. You know, it's an impulsive thing. If there's barriers, it will be just what it says the word is, barrier. And then the few minutes that, you know, they step back, you know, they might have gotten a phone call of support. They might have had, you know, just a second thought. What else needs to be done to put a barrier between people and suicide? The main thing is decreasing the stigma behind mental health. A lot of people are afraid to come forward. They're afraid to talk about it. And people that need help are afraid to reach out because they might not get the help that they need. I would like to talk today about a health epidemic that is claiming the lives of tens of thousands of Americans each year. I'm speaking about the epidemic of suicide. It was Rhode Island Senator Jack Reed who co-sponsored new legislation creating the National 988 Suicide Prevention Lifeline. The simple three-digit number connects callers in crisis to local mental health professionals 24-7. Hello, you've reached BH Link. This is Matt speaking. How can I help you? The 988 number went live in July. The idea that we're changing a number from a 1-800 number to 988 makes it that much easier to memorize uh, and that much easier to reach out for help. Joe Ash is the co-director of BH Link, Rhode Island's hub for behavioral health. He says the new three-digit number works for people experiencing a mental health crisis the same way 911 is there in general emergencies. Do you see any parallels between the push for barriers on our state bridges and 988? Absolutely. And the idea of 
the 988 call line being a barrier is it gives the person in crisis the opportunity to step back for even a moment and really contemplate the impact of what their thoughts really mean and what executing those thoughts means. One of the things that's special about our call center specifically is we are paired with a 24-7 walk-in triage center. Our ability to not only respond to crises over the phone but also to invite people into our doors and say come get the help in person that you need. Oh, let's talk about you possibly coming into the BH link. So if anyone's looking for a comprehensive assessment with a master's level clinician, a nurse, peer recovery specialist, they can come in, receive an assessment and referral to the appropriate level of care. To keep them out of emergency rooms, to keep them out of inpatient hospital settings, we're really trying to divert calls from 911 that don't need to be going into 911. Also we have the ability to dispatch mobile crisis into the community and provide that consultation and assessment in the community. And so being able to have someone come to your home and check in with you is really a, a big step and a step in the right direction. You talked about trying to reach someone the night that you went off the bridge. Uh, Do you think 988 would have helped? Maybe. It's a voice on the other end. Hello, this is BH Lake. How can I help you? That has a Rolodex of resources and, you know, somebody just to listen. Meantime, once the design study on safety fencing for the state's bridges is complete, there may be another barrier, cost. They estimate it's going to be five million per bridge. A lot of people will say, it's a lot of money for this. How much is a life worth? Is, is five lives not worth five million? Because five people have died this year alone in Rhode Island on Rhode Island bridges. Five people. Do you truly believe that these barriers are going to prevent suicides? Without a doubt. Without a doubt they will. It's too easy to jump these bridges and people are doing it. It's a no-brainer. These bridges need barriers. Bridges that are built now get barriers. Barriers will prevent people from dying. For some people, they've already been through enough pain. They've already suffered enough pain in their life and they just they just want it to end, you know, and that's what I wanted. That, to me, was solving my problems. Now, when you look at the bridge, how do you feel? I feel like I succeeded in getting through times in my life that I'm meant to be. Now I just hope that I could prevent someone else from making decisions like that and just keep it as a beautiful structure instead of using it for something so tragic and, you know, dark. Fifty years ago this month, Rhode Island rallied for an event nicknamed the Woodstock of Environmental Cleanups. Thousands of volunteers gathered to clean up what was then one of the dirtiest rivers in America, the Blackstone. Tonight, as part of our continuing Green Seeker series, we take a look at their monumental effort. The whole Blackstone River was referred to as probably the hardest working river in America because it was lined from Worcester to Pawtucket with factories of many different kinds starting with the Slater Mill in 1793. My name is Irene Nepiker. 
I'm a resident of North Smithfield, Rhode Island, and uh, I and my co-leaders took part in Operation Zap 50 years ago. My name is Dave Quinn. I'm 75 years old now, so going back in 50 years, I think I have a pretty good memory, but 50 years, eh, you know, because of industrialization, that was the only dumping ground they had. So it poisoned the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. The Blackstone is our river of life in this area. It meanders past 30 communities for 51 miles. It's a big, beautiful, flowing river. But this river has problems. The river is strewn with debris Thousands and thousands of truckloads of debris in the wetlands and in the floodplains all along its 51 miles. And the question arises as to what we're going to do about these problems. Project Zap is a dramatic one-day effort to clean up the banks of the Blackstone River by using the volunteer effort of the people who live and work along its banks. This we feel is only a first step and a spectacular step. We're not kidding ourselves. We know that this isn't a one-day problem. We know that this is a one-year, two-year, four-year, five-year, in some cases maybe even a ten-year project before the Blackstone River is again the kind of a river it was uh, 60, 70, 80 years ago. We hope we can do it, and we're sure going to try. On behalf of the 85 member companies of the Rhode Island Road Builders Association, we're pleased to uh, pledge the support of over 250 pieces of equipment and from 250 to 300 uh, skilled operators. The community response has been very positive. Each community will take full responsibility for all debris in its area. Operation Zap is ready to go. Broadcasting live at WICE with Bob Hollins here at 2.30, and we're broadcasting from the banks of the Blackstone River in Pawtucket. We'd like you to come on down. So we had been assigned a kind of backwater off the main river to work on there, cleaning the edges of it and so forth. They were rather dark and forbidding and oily, you know? They looked gross. <laughs> And there were a lot of things kind of protruding from them, you know. It was not a place that you would go unless you had to. I think it's going very well, uh, considering that we have uh, so many volunteers that uh, and I Park, I think we're in very good shape. Uh, there's a lot less confusion than I had really anticipated. At this point, I'm pretty happy. We're all doing a good job, I think. We're trying hard anyway. We have about 15 girls and their children with us. It's a little exhausting, but we just think it, it needs to be done. I worked a lot down that way, and I helped pull, pull stuff out of the water. We pulled this great, big, huge, I don't know what it was. It was a piece of a door, like a big, it was size a of a mansion door. It was a door. It was 
you. Yeah, it was a duo. Would you guys rather been out playing baseball today? Or what? I'd rather do this. I'd rather do this. The guy in the middle is me, 50 years ago. Because there were people all over the place. Now, I was busy running around, you know, from place to place. But I finally went to where they were dumping all the stuff up in Cumberland. And there were military machines there moving things around. There were tens of thousands of tires that they were moving around that people got from the river. There was a helicopter flying overhead up and down the river to check what was going on. It was unbelievable. To me, anyhow, you know, I'd never seen anything like that. It was like, uh, like a little mini invasion of something. The response was overwhelming. More than 10,000 volunteers showed up for work, bringing rakes and shovels. Stretched out over 10 miles of riverbanks, this constituted a virtual army of school kids, housewives, engineers, truck drivers, factory workers, and a multitude of others all working together. This was the time when you had a lot of your uh, folk music and so forth that was leading you to think of your environment. Pete Seeger had been active. So this was a huge draw. He was giving a concert in the evening and all of those who had participated in the cleanup during the day were invited down to this big field where the auto park is now. And uh, there was a big flatbed in there. Bring your chairs. And Pete Seeger stood on that flatbed and just played and sang. It was absolutely the most wonderful ending for an effort that we had put in to making the world a cleaner, better place. And after learning about that historic effort to clean up the Blackstone five decades ago, we wondered what's happened since. Contributing reporter John Smith has that update. Amazingly, Nearly 20 years after Project Zap, things got considerably worse. In 1990, the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, designated the Blackstone as the most polluted river in the United States. But unlike the visible debris of the past, that distinction came from the unseen pollutants. Things that we're still working on today are other pollutants in the water that shouldn't be there. Jane Sawyers is a supervising environmental scientist at the Rhode Island Department of Environmental Management, or DEM for short. So it's the metals, it's bacteria, it's other um, pollutants that are on the waterway. It can even be um, just sediment itself. And the contamination wasn't just from the Blackstone's industrial past. The river was getting a fresh supply of sewage from poorly regulated treatment facilities. The Blackstone River and other rivers were seen as conveyances. That's where you put your waste. And it could be that you knew what the factory upstream was doing because the color of the water today was this color. So that's not um, gonna be healthy for the fish. It's not gonna be something people want to recreate in. At the Woonsocket Wastewater Plant, those efforts are evident. Here, sewage is treated through a 10-step process before as much as seven million gallons goes into the Blackstone every day. We issue permits to the wastewater treatment facilities. We've continually worked on those with the regulated community. And as we've moved those permit limits down, the treatment plants have been able to build and remove some further pollutants from the water body. That permitting effort has continued to keep the Blackstone clean. 
and it allows the fish and the aquatic life to thrive in the water. Now, the Rhode Island DEM is investigating the discharge of partly treated sewage wastewater from a Woonsocket treatment plant facility on Cumberland Hill Road. But there still have been problems at this site. Although it has been reported that they have been addressed, the plant declined to comment. For Sawyers and others, however, sewage isn't the only source of contamination to worry about. Stormwater is a big problem. Sidewalks, parking lots, rooftops. They're not going to hold and trap the water, so they're going to move everything directly into the water body. It's not going to infiltrate and remove those pollutants. And, she says, one of the greatest issues with stormwater comes from our front yards. The same nutrients that we use um, to fertilize our lawns um, that are in pet waste, human waste, they can feed algae and aquatic plants and they can overgrow and that's not easy to recreate in. It's not easy for the aquatic life to live in. And if that dies off, it can really drop the dissolved oxygen levels. You could have a fish kill, you could have um, other kind of aquatic life not living. To ensure specific water quality standards are met, the Department of Environmental Management adheres to a rigorous schedule of sample collection and reporting. We test for bacteria, we test for metal. We compare it to our water quality regulations and decide whether or not the waters are meeting our regulations and our goals. And if they are, then that's great. And if they're not, if they have some kind of pollution in them, we put them on a list that we report to um, EPA and to the public. Sawyer says that while many contaminants have been added to the list, recent testing has yielded some successes. Some of the pollutants that were an issue that we've been working on for decades, we're able to start to take those off the list. The data showing that we are meeting our goals for those pollutants, and that's very exciting news. Over the past two testing cycles, pollutants such as total phosphorus, dissolved oxygen, and dissolved lead have all been removed from the EPA's list. But while progress has been made in addressing known pollutants, a new challenge is emerging. First introduced in the 1940s, Forever chemicals, otherwise known as PFAS, have been used in many consumer and industrial products, including food packaging, water repellents, and cosmetics. According to the EPA, they contaminate soil, water, air, and aquatic life around the globe. And studies have shown that these chemicals are even found in most human bloodstreams. There's, there's a lot of challenges with testing for PFAS, and it's cutting-edge research. EPA has a roadmap to try to walk through the steps of how do you even collect a sample. PFAS is in everything. It's in people, so how do you collect a sample without contaminating that sample? Although PFAS present new challenges, Sawyer says she and others still have their eyes on the same prize as the pioneering Project ZAP volunteers 50 years ago. To see the progress that people are making is very exciting. In the original Operation Zap Blackstone, they had to rally support to get this going, and they were able to get a whole huge community going, and I think that has just kept going. Fifty years later, the new generation of people are coming on board. Zap Blackstone! Finally tonight, a sneak peek. We recently spent some time with Providence native and Houston Astros star Jeremy Pena, who told us about his path to success and a local baseball team that encourages young players to not only find that sweet spot of the bat on the ball,
but in life as well. On a dusty diamond, in a public park, with donated equipment and no clubhouse. The team is called Providence Sports and Leadership, or PSL. Changed your life? Not based on the baseball, but based on the relationships that I met with the program. It started with hard work. It was just showing up on time, you know, discipline, doing the little things right, putting the work in, and then going from there. Being a good person goes a long way. For Pena, it took him all the way to the majors and playing this day at Fenway Park against the Boston Red Sox. He takes the talent, his natural talent and the hard work that he's put in. Hopefully PSL is a part of that. Bill Flaherty is co-founder of PSL. It's a nonprofit inner city athletic and academic development program, encouraging young players to hit a grand slam at the plate and in life. Baseball's the hook where we talk about things like accountability and character and hard work. Flaherty says a decade ago he was working to renovate a property in South Providence when he spotted something intriguing from an upstairs window. I saw Kennedy Arias running a practice, must have been with 40 or 50 kids by himself. Just, you know, barking, coaching things all over the field, you know, getting the kids hustling, playing ball. And I just walked over to him and having a baseball background, having a good sense of the game and how to teach it. I just said, hey, what's going on here? Most of the players being coached that day were children of immigrants. Flaherty says he could see the talent and sense the need for more formal instruction. But conveying his intentions was not easy. Two very different backgrounds and visions and cultures. Because um, I don't speak Spanish and everybody thinks I look like a cop. I'm not a cop. <laughs> and how we kind of came together and over time were able to to, to, to share our visions and say, hey, let's do this. That's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Michelle San Miguel. I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you. Good night.